Welcome to FIA Speaks, a podcast at the centre of the futures, options and listed derivatives markets and the interesting people who work in them, run exchanges and regulate this industry. FIA's mission is to support open, transparent and competitive markets, protect and enhance the integrity of the financial system and promote high standards of professional conduct. Please note we have a lengthy disclaimer that I encourage you to listen to or read at FIA.org. But in short, this podcast is meant to be informative about this industry and should not be relied on for investment advice. And now, here's your host, FIA President and CEO, Walt Lucan. Welcome to FIA Speaks, a global markets podcast. In this episode, we are honored to have the CME Group Chairman and CEO, Terry Duffy, to join us. Welcome, Terry, to FIA Speaks. Well, thank you, Walt. I appreciate you having me. Now, Terry, uh, you have been... CEO and chairman since 2016, but obviously an executive at uh, CME since it going public in 2002. Um, you started in 1981 as a trader. Um, now we see this as a company that is, you know, approaching 70 million dollars or 70 billion dollars, excuse right. me, in market cap. Um, so tell me a little bit how somebody who grew up on the south side of Chicago of modest upbringing goes from that to running one of the largest, it, it is the largest exchange in the world with that sort of market cap. It's an amazing story. Well, it is an amazing story. And I think well, what you have to look at is the, you know, there's, there's so many people that have been involved in a 175-year-old institution, and I'm just one of them. And uh, my story is different than others, but uh, there's a lot of people that have you know, similar stories that come from different walks of life that have been a big part of our industry, including yourself. So there is, you know, it's called the futures industry, uh, which obviously you head up the association, but you've seen a lot of changes yourself in there. But for myself, I came, as you said, from a very humble beginning on the South Side, and there wasn't much going on back in 1980 when I was coming out of college. When you look at what was going on back then, interest rates and unemployment, um, unemployment almost mirrored each other as far as percentages. They were both around 20% coming out of the Carter era and going into the, the Reagan era. So there, there was just not a lot of opportunity in, in business, especially for young people. So I looked at uh, different things I wanted to do, and most of my uh, my neighbors uh, and uh, their children were either police officers or, fi- or firemen, and that's the profession they wanted to go to, which is an extremely honorable one. And I just uh, looked at it and said, okay, it's probably my path also. But and I actually met a guy that was instrumental in my life, and he has subsequently passed away way too young, but uh, he he was very instrumental in showing me that there's something other than um, just being, you know, a, a fireman or a police officer. And he always thought that I had a good aptitude for mathematical and um, s- uh, problems and solutions. And he also felt that I had a personality that could deal with individuals. So he said, you know, I want to bring you down to the CME, which he did. And it was late 1980. And I became a runner for $56 a week. And I'll be honest with you, Walt, I fell in love with it from day one. And um I had every intention to go back to doing something different after the first month of it because I didn't think it'd be worth it, but I never left and um, convinced my folks to get, help me in the business and they didn't have any money, but they did mortgage their uh, city bungalow and I, and I was very fortunate to have the backing of two loving uh, parents to, to get me started in this business. So I'm the only one in my family that's in financial services and um, doesn't make me right, wrong or 
better or worse. It's it's just where I went. And um, from there, I, I, I love the business so much. I fell in love with trading and, you know, but there's ebbs and flows like anything we do in life and it's hard. Um, so, you know, I wasn't quite sure if it was ultimately going to be my career. And then come 87 with the stock market crash, we saw a lot of volatility and it was a very scary time in the history of our industry, as you know. And, um, and then we had the situation in uh, Eastern Europe with Chernobyl blowing up with the nuclear reactor. And I was trading agricultural products at the time because those were the primary products that, that people traded back then. And we got new markets because people felt that Eastern Europe wouldn't be able to grow you know, a dandelion for years to come. So the agricultural markets got very active and, you know, it just was a whole different world for us. And, you know, business was good and opportunities were better back then. So um, I was able to flourish. And then as we were growing this institution, you know, people around the world were taking notice and new institutions were being created. You know, life was around, but they weren't really doing what the... Um, the, the type of business that, you know, they're doing today under the Intercontinental Exchange. You know, uh, Deutsche Börse was around with Eurex, but they had what was called the DTB back then. And they were the first ones kind of to come up with the electronic trading of their products. And, you know, that you could see that the world was evolving and changing. So, you know, from my standpoint as a trader, I, I took electronics into the open outcry environment and I used it and tested it. It was new, it was raw, but I tried it. And um, as difficult it was, as it was, I did know that it helped preserve futures for myself and maybe others. So then when we went into you know, the demutualization agreement to give the members who own the institution the liquidity event, you know, it, it seemed to be going off the rails a little bit. And you know, some was self-inflicted and some wasn't. And the one that wasn't was the godforsaken event that happened on September 11th of 2001, which derailed pretty much everyone's plans to do anything, including CMEs. So we pulled anything that we were going to do with an IPO. We waited a year, and and then people decided that maybe we shouldn't do one. And uh, I, I thought to myself, you know, we promised people we'd give them a liquidity event. And, um, you know, there's some healing between 9-11. Not all, because there's never going to be complete healing from that disaster. But uh, we, we decided to move forward and um, we decided to do it under new leadership. And so the board decided I would be the one right person to become chairman of the firm and, and lead the IPO. So I thought I would do it for a year or so and then go back to my business. But um, one year has now led into 19 and uh, here, here I am. And there's a lot that's gone on in between, but that's kind of the story of how I got involved in the business. And, and, and when you were a trader, what led you to think, boy, I'd like to actually work for this company as an executive. Was there a moment in time that you said, you know, I could do that. I have ideas. I have strategic thoughts about where this company could go um, under my leadership. Yeah, well, I guess I could lie to you and say, yeah, I had those visions many, many years ago, but I didn't. I, you know, I had visions in the 80s and 90s of, you know, I love markets. I love trading. And that was my world that I lived in. And, and I became somewhat successful at it. So, you know, Again, coming out of the 80s and 90s, the times were different and they were difficult and hard, and yet they they weren't nearly as complicated. So it's kind of an oxymoron to say that, but that's really what they were. And so for myself to say that I had all these ideas of where CME could go, I, I'd be fibbing by saying that. I think it wasn't probably till 2003, 2004 
that I started to, to work more closely with my counterparts, not only here at CME, but, you know, again, with Charlie Carey, you know, the former chairman of the Chicago Board of Trade, a terrific human being, great historian, great trader, um, just loves the business. And, uh, you know, he, he was seeing things differently, too. So I, I think coming together closely with Charlie was really one of the first times that I thought, well, you know what, between Charlie and myself and others, we can come up with some ideas that can help not only preserve but build these institutions and to where they're, where they're at today. So I, I would say, well, that was like 2003, 2004. So, you know, because we were still pretty enamored with our IPO of O2, and uh, there really wasn't much business decisions going on other than the electronification of the marketplace. And as you know, that was the, really the lowest hanging fruit on these businesses because you go from one model to another and you could you could get your user base from you know a, a, a gathering place of four walls with traders on it to participate to the universe so the, the big difference and um, so I think really that's where we saw it and then obviously the M&A activity that I was involved with with the Chicago Board and Trade and IMX is really when I decided okay I think I have a better handle on this than maybe I even originally thought can we talk a little bit about CME and its culture? Oftentimes, institutions take on the personality and the in the culture mm -hmm. of of their leaders. Um, CME, and you talk to the employees uh, here. A lot of them stay a long time. A lot of them um, are entrepreneurs and risk takers, and um, almost representing the personality of Chicago. Tell me a little bit about what it is that you're passionate about CME. Why is CME such a unique place and has brought together a unique culture in my view? Well, I think cultures, you know, is, is a word that we use a lot and I think it's maybe overused to some extent because cultures to me are always evolving. Um, I don't believe in one particular culture. I believe it evolves and I think we're seeing a big part of that right now, not just in our industry, well, but throughout the world, you know, just different movements going on and the cultures are changing, you know, people's, be people's behaviors are changing, and that's a good thing. Um, but my culture and what I try to inst instill here with my employees is a culture of a client focus. That I harp on that and talk about it at every single meeting. I talked about it today on my earnings call. I talk about, you know, efficiencies for the clients because that's really where you're going to drive growth. So. I want a culture here where people understand that we are in a situation to help create efficiencies for the marketplace because we are a neutral facilitator of risk management. It gives us the credibility to bring forth new initiatives, new applications for clients to use and better manage their business at a lower cost. That to me is the focus and the culture of CME Group today because that's what I like to do. I don't sit in my office and say, okay, I'll wait for someone to come talk to me like Walt Luca one day and, and say, okay, well, how's life? I, I'm on the road. I talk to clients. You know, I, I don't spend as much time with shareholders. And I tell them, I said, you don't want to see me. You know, you want me working with the clients. So I was in New York on Monday working with clients. And that's what I do. And I, I enjoy it very much because I'm looking for ways to make their experience better. So all the members that Walt Lucan represents at the Futures Industry Association are clients of CME. And that's what I wanna do. I wanna work with your clients, your members, our clients, to create efficiencies, to better have them, let them better manage their risk 
uh, at CME and what we can do. And I don't get too hung up on my competitors who are either listing lookalike products or something else. You know, I, I think that that's good. It's helpful. Competition's good. Um, there are intellectual property issues that we all want to protect, so that's different. But, you know, competition's fine. Competition's good, and I have no issue with that. I think, you know, competition is something that's made not only this industry but the United States a better place because, you know, when you look at the the pricing of CME's products today versus where they were at 30 years ago, they're cheaper today than they ever have been in the history, but the business has grown exponentially, so I think there is something to it. Let's talk a little bit about growth and where you see growth coming from for CME. Uh, today you had an earnings call, but there's lots of places, um, whether it's volatility, whether it's M&A activity, whether it's getting into new markets like Asia, new products. Is it all the above? I mean, where, where is it you're concentrating your strategy on growth? I would say it's all the above with the exception of M&A, Walt. I think we've done, you know, a lot of M&A, even though we're not in the news every day like maybe some others are about M&A. Uh, we did, you know, as I talked about earlier, some defining transactions in 07 and 08 with the Chicago Board of Trade and New York Mercantile Exchange, followed up by the, the, the JB with the S&P, obviously the Kansas City Exchange, and now recently with the Next Exchange. So I think we've been very targeted on our M&A activity to help grow the business without going out there trying to buy everything on the street. So I think we've done a good job as it relates to that is for our growth. You know, other parts are really the business is, is, is truly, in my opinion, not completely to a point where it's A, the education around derivatives is not fully appreciated, but more so every single day. And the participants, you can see, are much more educated today than they ever were in the history of this business. And the sophistication level of our participants are not just a handful of people in New York or a handful of people in Chicago or L.A. They're all over the country and all over the world. The sophistication is just amazing. And so they then can help grow our business because we provide access to them through the technology platforms that we have, uh, the clearing mechanisms that we have. So there's a lot of growth going through there. And again, when you can create the efficiencies like I referred to earlier, that's very powerful. We we just in recent times for your a lot of your members, well, you know, we gave them because of the efficiencies in our clearinghouse between the swaps and the futures from two point five billion dollars of margin savings to five billion dollars of margin savings in the last twelve months. That's a huge benefit um, to growing a business because it makes the people do more business and it attracts others. And then when you look at the growth internationally, as you referenced, you know, about 30% of our revenue is derived from outside the United States today. And the the trade was up significantly in just this quarter alone coming from Europe and Asia. So I, I think it truly shows that, you know, these are global entities, global institutions, and people are going to go where they can best manage the risk in all these multiple asset classes. So the growth is out there, and the growth is out there not by just when people talk about, like, the e-micros that we launched on May 6th of this year, and it's been the most successful launch in the history. I got asked the question, well, if that was so successful, why would you not have micros on all your products? Well, here's a simple answer, because most of my products, the standard nature in which they're set up, are there for risk management um, situations for people to mitigate and manage that risk, and they don't have the price appreciation or depreciation 
like an equity market does. So when you look at the value of the S&P 500 or the Dow 30, the, the valuations have gone to the moon over the last 20 years. So when you have that, the contracts become awful large. You don't have that same phenomenon in oil or gold or other products that we trade. So you don't need to make the contracts in micro size. Those are growth areas for us. And when you look at you know, the, the micro and, and the innovation thereof, that, that's, that's how we grow. And when you look at some of the interest rate products, during the entire last nine years since Dodd-Frank, and you know this as well as anybody, the interest rate environment's been pretty stagnant, for lack of a better term, until recently we saw some tightening by the Fed and we, people thought, well, rates are going to go up. Now we're seeing potentially easing. Uh, by the Fed, which which is a completely different message. So we were able to innovate during that period with new interest rate products, whether it's the ultra on the run treasuries, a whole host of interest rate products and grow our interest rate business in a zero rate environment. And I think innovation is the reason why we did that is because it's in our blood. Innovation's in our blood. We know that we can't sit still and expect people to want to trade the same product forever. I'm a big believer you have to come up with products that the world don't even know they need tomorrow, today. And I mean, it's the micro story is a fascinating one. You're trading 400,000 contracts a day. Like you said, it's one of the more, most successful contracts ever launched. Um, and I know it's not a, a product for every commodity, but it's really fascinating that you guys came up with a new idea um, that has taken off and that there's demand. You mentioned your focus on customers. Is this something that, how does it, that kind of innovation happen internally? Do you have teams of people that are thinking about this? Is this a, something that talking to customers, there was demand for that type of product? I mean, how does the, the incubation of those innovative ideas occur internally? I think when you look at the history of CME, and we'll talk about equities for a moment because we're talking about micros, well, and you look at 1997 when CME came out with the first e-mini contract, the electronic version of the S&P, we made it, you know, five times smaller than the standardized contract. And all of a sudden we got a tremendous amount of traction on that contract right away in 1997. And so some could say, was it the electronification and access to the S&P market, or was it truly the size of the overall contract that attracted the growth of that product? So I guess maybe we'll never know, or it's a combination of both. So when you look at today, and you look at the, the launch of the micro, you learn from your past a little bit, and you, you start to see when the value of these equity indices go up to a certain level, are you pricing out a, a a constituency that can no longer afford to participate in the equity market to manage that risk. And you don't want to lose them, so you look at where you what you originally did before, where you're at today, come up with new ideas, and I think the micro was one of those ways we look at it. Now, if the micro was trading one lots and that was it, I would be a little concerned, but the, you know, the average clip size or the average trade size, well, there's about three contracts per micro, which shows, you know what, maybe the contract for the E-mini got a little too big for certain people, and now they can still manage their risk in this product. So I think that's good innovation for us. Let me ask about, you mentioned the financial crisis, and I think coming out of 2008 um, in, the, in the recommendations of the G20 coming out of 2008 were that over-the-counter products would come into clearing, 
And I think there was optimism within our industry that this over-the-counter products may be a real boon for everybody, for clients, for FCMs, for exchanges. Um, but we haven't really seen, I think, the profitability coming out of the over-the-counter uh, markets, I think, that people may have anticipated at the time. Now, you have purchased Next, um, you know, in November of 2018, which prominent trading platforms on the over-the-counter over side. Do you, are, you, are you more optimistic that this may still evolve in a way that, that our industry may benefit from bringing together a total solution for both over-the-counter and exchange-traded derivatives? How do you see that playing out? Or is or had, did we over-anticipate uh, the, the over-the-counter movement and what might come from that? Well, I think that we have, I don't think anybody knew come 2010 when Dodd-Frank was implemented, what the movement was going to be from unregulated OTC lookalike products to standardized listed products. And, um, but I do believe there was certain other rules embedded in Dodd-Frank and we're seeing around the world today that just are counter to the marketplace because when you look at where we were at, say five years ago, with the U.S. Treasury market overall trade, we were at 55% of the notional value of trade in U.S. debt markets here at CME Group. Today, we're 117% of the notional value of trade of U.S. debt markets. So right there, you would think, well, where did that growth come from? Did it come from the growth of the product, or did it come from people that were originally using OTC products that are now using listed? I would say it's a little combination of both, Walt. But you know, it's, it's undeniable that the pools of liquidity are are powerful when when somebody needs to do a 50 billion dollar notional 10-year trade they use the 10-year futures contracts and it's pretty seamless for them it's kind of hard to get that liquidity in the cash market to do that so i think when you look at um not just the regulation but i think as people the regulation might have been the catalyst that showed people that there isn't a, a, a more efficient way for them to use their business. And I'll go back to what I said earlier. You know, I, I think when you look at swaps that are being centrally cleared, whether they're at LCH or at CME, and when you can take that against their futures positions and give them $5 billion in efficiencies to some of the biggest members of the FIA, you know, that's a pretty powerful offering. So um, the reason why we're able to do that is because we went to 153 million open positions here at CME, of which we had record open interest in our interest rate complex. So that is what helps generate the savings to the clients because more futures trading are being offset by the swaps in a single clearing entity. So I do believe, Walt, that the, the, my long-winded answer here is that I, I think the, the legislation, the way it was presented, was uncertain because as you know and you were there, the rules were not written for the legislation yet. The law passed, but then yourself and others had to interpret what Congress' intent was and write the rules associated with them. And now I think we're starting to see that the rules of the road are much clearer and the efficiencies come along with it. And I think we are seeing what we refer to as maybe potentially futurization, but it doesn't mean the OTC markets go away completely. I just think that people are looking for the most cost-effective platform to transact their business. And right now we've been, and others have been the beneficiary of that. And a lot of people have talked about the next transaction as being 
a place where CME can gain some of those synergies that you talked about. Is there certain synergies that you can preview or you're thinking about um, as you start to put those pieces together in a more efficient way for the customer? Yeah, well, I think that's a great question. And and as you know, and, and um, I'm sure your listeners know, and I know your members know this for sure, the broker tech platform, you know, sitting on Globex when it transitions over there, it's going to be a very efficient platform because you'll be able to access futures and cash on a single platform. So right then and there, we think that is marrying two massive pools of liquidity to benefit the client. Now, that does not mean that we are going to change the market structure for BrokerTech, because we are not. It's still going to be a dealer-driven platform, and the dealers uh, will make the decision on who is uh, accessing that platform. But I do believe by giving them BrokerTech on a single platform, that's going to be an inherent advantage uh, for their efficiencies of their trading. So I think that's a good thing. And on the EBS platform, there, you know, there's not the restrictions that we have with BrokerTech, so that'll be a more of an open platform. But it'll be the first time that you're going to have the largest listed futures market, which CME has in foreign exchange, with um, a cash platform in EBS. So if you look at $90 billion, uh, notional on CME uh, on a daily basis of FX and $90 billion on EBS, on a notional value. So you're going to take that and marry $180 billion together. And there's a lot of ways that we are looking at how we can marry that liquidity into one and have deeper pools for both. So I'm really excited by the FX offering because I think it'll be the first time you see anybody that has, because nobody else has the listed futures like we do with the liquidity. And we're going to have a cash platform sitting on Globex. I think that could be very exciting for the users. Let's talk a little bit about your, your global franchise, and you mentioned that 30% of your volume comes from outside the United States. 30% of our revenue. Of your revenues, I apologize. Um, we were recently together at a hearing of the House Agriculture Committee yeah. um, about uh, access to U.S. markets coming from overseas, and you know there was there is legislation currently that has passed in Europe that would allow their regulators to potentially, uh, the rules are still being written, um, but potentially to to regulate foreign CCPs, including the CME's uh, clearinghouse. Um, explain to our listeners why this is such a major issue, not just for CME, but other U.S. CCPs that may face European regulation. Well, a couple of things I will say about that hearing, Walt, and, you know, your former boss, the late great Senator Luger, um, you can't imagine uh, some of these people that the comments that were made coming out of that hearing and that were being made by uh, both sides of the aisle at that hearing were fairly powerful. Passionate, yes. I mean, I have in all the years I've been in this business, I don't think I've ever seen a congressional hearing with its members being so adamant and involved in reminding its European counterparts that you know th- this cannot happen and you will not oversee the U.S. financial industry. And one of the things that I thought was interesting as well, Walt, that came out of that hearing is, you know, the new chairman uh, of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, you know, Dr. Heath Tarbert. When when Tarbert penned an op-ed just recently, in that op-ed, he referenced that in Dodd-Frank, Dodd-Frank put a lot of eggs in one basket, I think, is the way he referred to it in his op-ed, which means that you are taking these products and putting them in the CCPs. 
Now, there is an inherent risk as he has penned in there. But the difference is, you know, we as CCPs, as I said earlier, we're a neutral facilitator of risk. So if the market goes up, the market goes down, we're agnostic to that. We just manage the risk versus the people that have it on their balance sheet have an inherent interest in which way the market goes. So there's a bit of a difference there when you talk about the risk associated with CCPs. But I thought what was important, really important about that is when the, the chairman referenced that he has a huge job today. He has to oversee what Congress implemented, which is putting these products into a CCP. And I think that it's going to be very difficult for anybody in the European Union or anywhere else to try to pull that jurisdiction out of the United States and into theirs. And you're referencing Amir 2.2 and Tier 2 and others with how they would fit into it and the requirements where they could potentially set our margins, set our governance, set fees, and basically take away the responsibility of the United States government. And I think that would be a catastrophic mistake, and I think that's what the chairman was clearly putting in his op-ed. So I'm assuming his passion with the backing of Congress, um, I'm, you know, I feel very comfortable, as comfortable as you can feel, Walt, when you're dealing with Washington, you've been there a lot longer than I, that we will ultimately come up with a resolution that makes sense both for the United States and the European Union. So a very interesting time that we live in. It has ramifications for all of your members, which are clients of mine. And we want to make sure that, as I said this morning on my conference, on my earnings call, you know, this is global commerce at its finest, what we do here. And there's an ecosystem associated with global commerce. And the last thing we would need to have happen is have that disrupted because that would be, you know, a big problem, not only for the United States, but other parts of the world who are counting on markets to help them manage their risk no matter where they're at in the world and where they're managing that risk at. Well, you gave very passionate testimony that day. And I would just note that the chairman... So did you. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. But the, the chairman... Uh, Scott submitted to uh, the European Union um, the testimony from that day, so they have it in their record for the legislation as they consider regulation. So hopefully, like you said, uh, sounder minds prevail in all of this. Um, I, just turning to a, a bit of a lighter note, um, you know, I know that CME and part of its brand has always been around sports, um, and you are a huge sports fan. I know mm -hmm. you grew up a hockey fan, playing hockey, mm -hmm. and uh, you're a good golfer, um, but you guys have, as a company, chosen to sponsor um, some sports franchises that may not be the mainstream uh, franchises, but have been enormously successful. The LPGA Tour, uh, Chicago Blackhawks, uh, rugby, sailing. Tell us a little bit about the sort of the the strategy around, um, and maybe, maybe it's a personal uh, love for these things, but... You guys have gotten great branding around these um, alternative sports franchises, and I, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. So I think you you hit the nail on the head, the branding that we received. So, um, well, unfortunately, we had an incident, as you're well aware, called MF Global. And during MF Global, the brand reputation of institutions get tarnished. And when 1.6 billion is missing, you can certainly understand that someone's brand is going to get hurt. Um, I tell the story, not frequently, but I tell it. You know, I was in Washington a lot testifying through that 
whole disaster, and CME was very much at the forefront to, to try to resolve that as quickly as possible. We put up a $650 million guarantee to get the money back to uh, the, the users of the products. You know, we had a lot of people parking money at MF Global because of the financial crisis. They thought that they could put it into a clearinghouse and it was safer than a bank because the clearinghouse has never had a default, which it still hasn't. The problem with that is we would take money, which everybody knows, and we give it to a bank. So it, it, it's kind of it was crazy. I don't think a lot of people understood it very well, the whole system of a clearinghouse. But people were opening accounts at different brokerage firms just to park money after the crisis. So when MF Global happened and people were, you know, you had a lot of $2,000, $3,000, $10,000 accounts that they were missing their money. And this was their savings. And you know what? They were upset and rightfully so. So as we're going through the process of getting the issue resolved, I was um, insomniac laying in bed one night watching PBS and Charlie Rose's show, and Charlie had on three of the icons uh, of finance and business. He had on Larry Ellison, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett. And he asked one question of the gentleman. He asked them, what is your biggest fear? And what, what do you need to protect? And all of them, to a man, said, reputation. Your reputation is extremely important, and once you lose it, it's almost impossible to get it back. And, and if I didn't have enough to worry about, that really frightened me coming from these three icons. But I work with Anita and my staff, and I said, you know, we're going to rebuild the brand of CME. And it, it, this was not our fault what happened with MF Global, but it doesn't matter. You know, we still have... We got the issue resolved, but now it's time to rebuild the brand. So you look at that and you say, how are we going to do it? You can do it locally, you can do it nationally, and you can do it globally. You can go to New York, you can go to L.A. and go to the, the mega capitals of the world and try to say that we're, we're the good guys and everybody else is the bad guys. You know, my the way I looked at it was I worked with, you know, the former Secretary of Agriculture, Dan Glickman, who's on my board, and he's been very passionate about the 4-H for a lot of years. We, we are the sponsor of the 4-H. I think that is something we probably should have done years ago, but, you know, that was part of our branding message. So it's just not a national, an NHL franchise team that you're sponsoring. But we happened to catch a little lightning in the bottle with the Chicago Blackhawks because we wanted to have a, our name out there more locally. We're not Coca-Cola. We're not Gatorade. We're not Nike. We're... we're, we're an institution that doesn't deal with much retail like they do on an everyday basis. But at the same time, it was important for the people of Chicago to know that CME Group is a very important institution, not only to Chicago and Illinois, but to the country and the world. So we thought that was a good place to do. And then, like I said, we call the Lightning with three Stanley Cups, so that didn't hurt either. And as far as the LPGA goes, you know, everybody thinks these are all my passions, but it just happened to work. Um, as far as the LPGA goes, I was always of the mindset that, you know, we wanted to do client events and we've been doing them forever, but at no six or seven, oh eight, we would have these small events down in Florida. I would get 20 LPGA pros and, uh, no fault of theirs. They were being completely underpaid on the tour and they were playing uh, only a handful of tournaments and the tour was not doing so well. So they would happily come down and, and play in a pro-am with my clients and the clients loved it because... You know, the, the women were just terrific ambassadors, and uh, the clients really enjoyed it. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe this tour can, can go somewhere different. So we had talked, and we said, well, maybe we should sponsor one of the young ladies, and we did. And that, went, that morphed into, well, maybe we should try to get a regular tour event. 
And this is one that only has 17 events on tour. So we decided that this might be a good branding for CME Group. And um, actually, the, the women's tour grew by over 30% since we joined the women's tour. Now, it's not just because of CME, and it's not because that we're smarter than the next guy. But when you look at how the world has evolved, and you look at the inequality, for lack of a better term, that women and men's sports have in between them. And when the conversation's going on right now with soccer, the conversation's going on right now with every sport that women are doing. And women should be compensated no different than men. But at the same time, there are so many companies that will pay for certain events and they'll pay less for others. So I wanted to be a, not a trailblazer, but I thought, you know, we, we need to have something different. So we created, a, you know, the race to the CME Globe, a season-long race, and now this year, well, we're pleased. I mean, we couldn't be more pleased. We've got a, a partner in St. Jude Children's Hospital where all the money, the charity money is going to go to, and we have the highest price on the LPGA Tour in the history of the LPGA Tour. You know, we're going to pay the winner of our event this coming year $1.5 million. That's more than half of the events on the, on the PGA Tour that the winner would get. So we're really excited about, you know, changing a little bit but I so I think we're being socially responsible and at the same time you know we we are branding ourselves with some an organization of fine ambassadors that's a global game um, very big in the uh, Asian community and we get a lot of business coming out of Asia so it made a lot of sense for us uh, to continue to build our brand and as you know our brand is now valued at more than any other exchange in the world so I think we did a lot of what would be deemed as the impossible. Our reputation was tarnished during the MF Global situation, and we've been able to rebuild it by doing smart, targeted events, and we just didn't throw money at things. I was involved. My, my team is involved, personally involved, in all these different things. So I think that's what's helped with the, the branding of it. And there was no secret sauce to it. There wasn't just a passion of mine for hockey or golf because I can't play hockey anymore. And uh, at golf, I, I can keep up with some, but not all. So I, I think it's something that's been really good for the company, and I, I think it makes sense. And if we can make a bit of a difference in a young girl's life as she's growing up, then you know what? We, 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 our job here is uh, well-suited. No, I think it's been a tremendous success for both for the brand and for helping these wonderful athletes. Um, and I've had an occasion to, to play in your tournament in the pro-am and they're wonderful people too, which is, it's wonderful to, to be a part of that. Um, in closing, and you've been very generous with your time, um, you wrote a, a wonderful op-ed uh, recently about the importance of getting young people educated about economics and our markets. And you and I have kids the same age in high school. They're starting to think about college or they're starting to think about their careers. As a, somebody who's been in our industry, who was given a chance by somebody in our industry, um, you know, 30 plus years ago, you know, what would you be saying to your, your sons, to my son, to encourage them to come into our industry? What can we be doing to attract the best and the brightest to our industry? You know, well, that's a great question. And I think that there's no silver bullet to this one. And when you look at what the young people of not only the U.S. but other parts of the world know about financial services, 
you have to realize what they have seen in their young lives today. So you cannot be surprised that they do not want to be a part of it. So they saw bad behavior in whether it was, you know, LTCM, whether it was Orange County, whether it was the dot-com bust of 2000, whether it was the bad behavior of Enron Online and subsequently Sarbanes-Oxley, whether it was the financial crisis, whether it was business displacing their mom and dad, and they saw that growing up. And financial services was looked at bad. And then obviously the crisis is just something that was just horrifying. And so when people look at that, they just assume that the people that are involved in this are bad. I think what you have to look at and what you have to do is try to educate people in a way that's not offensive. What I like to do is I speak to several universities a year. I go around and I speak, and if they'll listen, I'll talk. And if they don't want to listen, I get it. But I think it's it's not something that we're going to change overnight, but I think if we just let it lie, it's going to get worse. And financial services, in my opinion, is one of the great national security protections that this country has. We're seeing it right now, the influx of money that comes into the United States today, which creates jobs. You have to explain to people how that works because of the way the rates are in Europe with a negative rate environment. There's no incentive to keep your money in Europe unless you're going to spend it. But if you don't, you invest it into the U.S., which helps create jobs. And, uh, you know, when people are building new communities or hospitals or police stations or what, new parks, that money has to come from somewhere. And a lot of times it doesn't come from the local residents. It comes from them selling bonds. And the people buying those bonds are all over the world, including Wall Street. So Wall Street is Main Street. Main Street is Wall Street. And I think you have to take the time. Try to educate the young people that this is an honorable profession. There are bad actors in everything we do in life, including financial services. And it's up to all of us to make sure that we rid any industry of bad people and, and try to make it a better place, including financial services. So I don't think there's a magic bullet to this. Well, I think it takes time. I think it takes time for people like myself. I think we, I have an obligation. I believe that some of the big bankers in the world have an obligation. I believe Walt Lucan has an obligation to get out there and, and remind people of the benefits of this industry and then let them make up their own minds. But the, right now, they're, they're tainted and, and, and they're demoralized, and you can absolutely see why they feel that way. Amen. Amen. So, well, well, thank you, Terry, very much for joining us on FI Speaks. It's been a fascinating conversation. We really appreciate it. Well, well, I can't thank you enough. And I, it, you know, I'll, I know this is a podcast and it's an FIA podcast, but I think it's important for the people that do listen to this that know that the history that Walt Lucan has in the industry and how you're helping grow this business on a daily basis is critically important to the success of so many. So your leadership, Walt, is very much appreciated by the industry. And sometimes when you lead an association like this, you don't hear it often, but I will tell you as one of your members, we appreciate your leadership very much. Well, thank you very much, Terry. And thanks to our audience for listening. And as always, we welcome your feedback on issues and ideas at FIAspeaks at FIA.org. Thanks for listening. FIA Speaks is brought to you by the staff of the FIA. Steve Adamski is our executive producer. Cameron Lane is our technical producer, with additional technical support from Craig Richardson. We welcome your feedback on these podcasts at FIAspeaks at FIA.org.
This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast's content. Reliance on the podcast content is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2019 FIA. All rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.